Welcome to Borderless Sustainability. In this podcast, we explore the fascinating interplay between people, planet, and profit. My name is Elisa Rivera, and joining me on this exciting journey is the brilliant Miguel Fraga. And together, we'll learn how language, geography, and culture intersect to help us create a more sustainable world. Our aim is to share knowledge and ignite your passion for making a difference. So get ready to learn and be inspired. Brittany, a renowned former NASA principal investigator, possesses a wealth of expertise garnered through decades of dedicated efforts aimed at expanding her skill set with a view to realizing her lifelong objective of obtaining organizational success while concurrently improving the quality of life for humanity. Her areas of specialization encompass bioregenerative, physical, chemical, hybrid life support systems, having contributed significantly to the development of technology for the International Space Station, spacesuits, spacecrafts, Mars habitation, and the Department of Defense. Her work entails the integration of nature-based solutions with technology to provide a viable environment for astronauts, including the provision of clean water, breathable air, essential nutrients, radiation protection, and the maintenance of optimal thermal and pressure conditions. She was entrusted with the leadership of a team tasked with the development of technology to sustain 1 million individuals breathing air on Mars. However, her vision of guiding the organization towards the development of similar technology for Earth applications was not aligned with the organizational goals, which led her to the decision of establishing her own organization. Brittany is now the CEO of a globally recognized organization with a diverse team of over 300 graduate level experts hailing from over 50 countries. This organization has bridged the gap between space technology and terrestrial applications by bringing advanced solutions to meet the needs of human humanity on earth. Thank you so much, Brittany, for joining, joining us today. This is such a privilege and an honor to get to, to know you virtually, um, to get this opportunity to share your knowledge, your expertise with all of our listeners. It's, it's truly just an honor to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm super excited to be here, um, both with uh, you and Miguel. So, um, I think the conversation will go in some pretty exciting directions from space to earth to waste to viable products. Well, who knows? So looking forward to it. Same. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing how your entire career has really just gone. It's covered such important life topics. And, um, I just want to start off with a question. Um, I want to ask you, what inspired you to pursue a career in aerospace engineering? And how did you decide to transition away from your aerospace career to sustainability? They're so different, but somehow <laughs> they align very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I wish I had some really cool story about how I dreamt of being an aerospace engineer as a kid and grew up into that, but that would not be honest at all. So, um. For me, I definitely had a knack for right the sciences and the technologies as a as a young girl. But um, I took a test uh, in my junior year, and it was like hundreds of questions, and it was like, how much would you enjoy doing this thing or that thing? And you go through all of these things, and it gave me a list of ten different uh, d- careers that it thought I would be, you know, decent at and, and would match my, you know excitement and passions and desires and I went through the top 10 and I literally googled like 
what's the average salary of a person who does all of these top 10 things? And in the top 10 was nuclear engineering for me. And so I started looking at nuclear engineering as the direction I wanted to go um, because it had the highest salary of the top 10. And so I almost joined um, the military, the U.S. Navy, because uh, they had a fantastic uh, nuclear engineering program. Um, but at that period of time, women were not allowed on submarines, which is where a lot of the nuclear engineering uh, needed to be done. Uh, so I started looking in different directions. There were some, uh, you know, universities that did nuclear engineering, but they just weren't up to, you know, what I thought the same caliber as you could get in the U.S. Navy. So um, I started looking at things that were ancillarily related. Um, and I had been a tinkerer for a long time. And so I decided, well, maybe I could do mechanical engineering because that's extremely, you know, broad and is needed in most industries, right? It, it's it's uh, ubiquitous. And so um, I decided to tackle uh, mechanical engineering, uh, getting into that. And the first year I realized I wanted to specialize in aerospace. So I started getting into aircraft design and that. Um, and yeah, right out of uh, college, I ended up uh, designing aircraft for a while. Um, I started working on uh, a lot of different research projects, more in the space realm. Uh, I started doing um, some graduate work up at the University of North Dakota, also in the uh, MS Space Studies program. I was partially founded by uh, Buzz Aldrin. So it's a really, really cool program up there. And um, wow. yeah, I decided to jump in there full time and make the transition right out of aerospace and into more of the outer space sector. I originally went over to start designing greenhouse modules for a NASA um, inflatable lunar Martian habitat that um, was being developed and thought that was thrilling and exciting. And it was. Um, and so I did that for a long period of time. And uh, yeah, I, that was really um, where, uh, you know, I'd say I kind of fell into my, the, you know, the next decade uh, of my life. And that was really specializing in bioregenerative physiochemical hybrid life support systems for long duration space flight. It's the right, how do you keep humans alive in places where it's very difficult to stay alive, right? In extreme environments. Um, so yeah, you know, how do, how do we make it so that people can get the water they need, the nutrients they need, make sure we're protected thermally, you know, in terms of pressure, in terms of radiation, nutrients cycles is extremely important. And a big part of that is also uh, waste. Right. So how do we control contaminants uh, and deal with a lot of the waste products that we make? And yeah, uh, so I enjoyed doing that. And it was extremely fruitful for me. Right. Like you were mentioning, Elisa, and got to develop some of the coolest technologies that are flying in space now and got to contribute to, you know, some of the space programs that I think will. Yeah, will be down in the history books for sure. So it's a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, my big transition out of aerospace uh, and <laughs> into sustainability was uh, really motivated. It was not a midlife crisis because I'm not halfway through my life. <laughs> I'm going to have a long and a fruitful life. So I'm going to call it like a, I don't know, an existential awakening or I, I don't know, something that sounds cooler than quarter life crisis. Um, but for me, I had a really close friend in Panama. And uh, this very close friend of mine in Panama ended up contracting a waterborne illness that ended up being fatal. 
And it shook me. I mean, it just changed the way that I thought about what I was doing with my life and the role that I was playing, you know, in the development of these technologies. And the hardest part for me was, you know, a few months before she had passed, I was in her home with a laptop that was providing clean drinking water to people in the International Space Station. But she didn't have access to clean enough water continuously enough to keep her own life, you know? And like, oh man, like it just messed with me, you know, like as it should, you know, it's like, okay, is my head so far up in the clouds that I'm developing technologies that what, maybe a hundred people will ever get to interface with while the people who are directly you know, in my close circle of friends are perishing because they don't have access to these exact types of technologies. And so that's really what started maybe that change in perspective where I'm like, okay, well, we we invest all of these time and energy and resources and expertise and capital into developing these technologies that work in these extreme environments. And that's wonderful. And we should continue doing that. But we need to make sure that we're, you know, kind of reaching back and making sure that these technologies are being developed for the terrestrial realm, right? Where the majority of humanity will get to interface and benefit from those technologies being developed in, in the first place. And so that was really big. And then I was also uh, developing some air revitalization systems. So I was working on a project where we're looking at housing very large amount of people on the Martian surface. And so for Mars, right, the atmosphere on Mars is 95% carbon dioxide. It's already a greenhouse gas planet. And so we're developing these technologies that make it that, you know, so that humans can translate that CO2 into things that are breathable and or useful for our spacefarers. It's like, oh, my goodness. Why are we not having conversations with people in the climate space, right? As you're going through this, like, major reframing of everything. And it just, it just. I guess that was just kind of the, you know, a moment that just changed my perspective on so many things that I just started looking at the work that I was doing and saying, wait a minute, how can we be applying these to places where it has more impact, you know, positively and environmentally and socially um, on our planet here? And, and I, that was really the, the impetus, you know, and, and I thought that they, they went together really well, you know, it was, it was really serendipitous. I was being groomed as the CEO of a private space organization at the time. And I wanted to bring up a division that could focus on that. But the organization didn't really think that it was in alignment with, you know, kind of their branding and mission. And so, yeah, I decided I cared about that too much to let it go. And started up Yame. And yeah, we've grown a bunch. And it's been really exciting. And when I decided to step away from the industry, um, I had been doing so much stuff. I mean, I was um, managing teams and groups of folks that, you know, out of Johnson Space Center, um, out of Glenn Research Station, um, working with groups out of Ames, Boeing, two different university departments, the development of different space hardware I was developing, managing three public-private partnerships. I mean, like just an insane number of things going on. A bunch of people came forward and said, you want to come with? on this new endeavor just like you know uh you were saying is okay like there's a lot of people in the aerospace field and in you know in the outer space sectors who have a passion for sustainability and i think this really showcases that right is when we brought up this 
avenue by which people could make that decision, a lot of people decided. Well, this is, I mean, you have such you know, rich, rich yeah. experiences like and level experts it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that this is really, where your career has yeah. taken you. I'm thankful that you've had, you know, you've opened the doors to several engineers and outside, you know, just scholars to, to, start navigating this this direction of sustainability and yeah i would just want to say it really did hit home everything you're saying is just really it's it's something that i completely completely agree with um this there's this one quote that your story with your friend um was reminding me of it and just your impact so far it's like it says when your inner person is focused on service to the people around you that is when you know you're successful and that's mm-hmm. by Lewis House. I think that is the def like I think that is exactly what's happening here. And yeah, I just I want to say thank you for doing that. Thank you for opening those doors for other people. And that is a very uh, wonderful story about changing perspective and make it into actionable items. And one result of that was the organization that was created, right? And and the name of it's the organization itself. It's very intriguing to me. Like it sounds very catchy, but what does what does it mean? It's called Yame, but what does it mean? Does it stand for something? How how did that name came about? Can you tell us more about the yeah. name and your organization in general? Yeah, for sure. So um, I uh, right originally Dawn from uh, the space industry, and I had started working on a technology that I was interested in. Um, we were designing closed loop systems, like biospheres, essentially to live in, right when you're on other planets, and one of the things I was particularly looking at was the greenhouse, right? The nutrient parts of uh, living on, an, on another planet. And so one of the things about that is uh, there's something called a harvest index rate. Um, and the harvest index rate is really what portion of a plant is edible, right? Like a radish, for example, you can eat every single part of a radish, right? The harvest index rate, right, is one. You can, you can eat everything. Um, Then there's other types of plants where the harvest index rate is not so great. Like if you think about corn, right? Uh, Corn is a huge plant, but a very small portion of that is actually edible to the human, right? And so that has a a very, very low and near zero uh, harvest index rate. So everything sort of is in between these two different spectrums, right? And so one of the big questions we have is what do you do with all of that inedible portion of a plant, right? We want to have a recycled, a circular recyclable system. Um, we want it to be closed loop. And so uh, one of the things that I wanted to look at was, okay, we want to extract the nutrients that are still inherently in that inedible part. So I started looking at feeding that to things like, you know, grubs, crickets, fungi, things along those lines that could extract that nutrients but then put it in a form that was then in itself 100% edible to the space fair. And so I was looking at doing that and I got really excited about it. The Eastern Hemispherian astronauts were like, yeah, this is great. Um, the Western Hemispherian astronauts told me to go kick rocks, you know, they're not popping bugs into their mouths. Um, and so I thought, okay, this is a psychological issue because these are high value nutrients and proteins, right? They're all of our macronutrients and everything are in here. So what can I do to help us kind of get over that psychological barrier? So I started processing this, you know, these leftovers uh, into like 
small patty looking thing so that it didn't look like, you know, grubs or worms or crickets or anything along those lines and was in turn very edible. Well, the folks that I was working with started calling these little patties McCrickets. <laughs> That's very clever. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want it to be called a McCricket. So I actually came up with the term you may at the time because I wanted to instill this like feeling or emotion of like something that was delicious and gourmet and yummy. Mm. And like, I kind of put all of these terms together. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to bring across that, hey, I know that it's coming from somewhere that's like psychologically kind of icky, but like trust that this is not only a very healthy thing for your body, but for the entire, you know, circularity of the ecosystem that we're working on supporting here. And so I did that. And then I started working on all kinds of technologies. I don't know if I had mentioned, I don't think I did. You know, I had uh, earlier in my career, I developed some technologies that take astronauts' feces, extracts the water from the feces, and makes it fully potable again. So we actually can reconsume the water that we lose through our digestive systems. And then I use the dried biomass that's left over from that as uh, filler and additive manufacturing in flight, which means you can actually 3D print all of the replaceable components you need for your mechanical systems utilizing the waste that our biological systems are generated, right? But there's another bit to that, right? It's like, okay, as we start looking at developing these technologies that are turning, you know, waste streams into potable drinking water that we're bringing back into our bodies, I wanted that same sort of, you know, like emotion and feeling, you know, with, with technology is that kind of followed suit there. And then finally, right, a lot of the stuff that we're working on now is really in you know, in the climate space, you know, we're ta- we're removing um, pollutants out of the air, we're deacidifying the ocean, we're bringing waste from landfills into the system, and we're producing commodities and breathable air and drinkable water and things along those lines out of the system. And I felt that it really fit in that same sort of umbrella, right, where it's, hey, I know it's coming from a dirty source, but we, you know, We've, we've broken these molecules down, we've turned them into their base components, and we've built them back into things that are not only very good for us, but are really good for the environment. They're socially, you know, there are major social benefits. And so it's really meant to instill that sort of trust, I suppose. Yeah. And so, uh, Yamei. And I couldn't believe that there was a six-letter domain available um also like that it was still in existence so that was really cool and um available and so yeah um so it became yamay yeah it's amazing i like that i i want to ask you is that um what you know what you were talking about is that the biocharge soil that you that your research is on yeah 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 yes so what we yeah, so what we do, so like what we're working on right now in terms of commercialization um, is we bring in waste as all the inputs. The only inputs into uh, what we're working on right now is um, waste that traditionally end up at a landfill, right? That can be municipal solid waste, can be waste plastics, waste metals, waste glasses. We bring in industrial waste, sludges, ag waste. Um, we bring in effluent coming out of wastewater treatment facility centers, um, 
for us, um, oh yeah, we bring in greenhouse gases, right? We strip greenhouse gases and help deacidify oceans. So it's literally just waste as the input. Um, we work with different communities because different communities produce different amounts of different waste. Some places are highly industrial, so they make a lot of industrial waste. Some places are high in construction, so you get a lot of construction waste. Some are very residential, maybe a commercial, so you end up with a lot of, you know, solid waste that end up at waste, you know, the, the, the landfill. And so we build up the solutions specifically for different communities, what they, you know, generate a lot of. And we do a lot of electrochemistry. Um, but what we're doing is we're just taking the long carbon chains and we're breaking those carbon chains down, essentially. So a short mm -hmm. carbon chain that we're all very familiar with, for example, is carbon dioxide, right? And everybody's mad at it right now, so I pick on it. Um, so carbon dioxide <laughs> is only a toxin because of its molecular bond. If you break the bond between carbon and oxygen, you have carbon and oxygen. We love oxygen. This is our friend, right? And then you have carbon in its gaseous state, which you don't want. So we translate that into its solid state. And in that solid state now, we can utilize that carbon to build different things. And we do that with all of the waste that comes in. So we're essentially taking these long chains down, these long molecular chains. We're breaking them into shorter you know, bits, O2s, Hs, nitrogens, you name it. And then we put them back together in a way that mimics mother nature. So it's biomimicry, right? Mimicking bio. And uh, we look at mother nature and we said, wow, mother nature does brilliant stuff. She takes waste and turns it into minerals, into soils, into atmosphere, into water. And none of those are waste streams. There has to be ways that we can replicate that. And so that's what we do. And we make four things that come out of our system. Uh, number one, right, is our mineral. Our mineral is essentially a net negative alternative to concrete. So it's super cool stuff. It's 100% made from waste as an input. Um, for every ton of the concrete that we produce, we remove more than a ton of greenhouse gases directly from the environment. So it's super net negative, but probably one of the coolest parts too is it's mechanically superior to traditional ordinary Portland cement-based products without needing to mine anything, without needing to import things. So it's really, really cool. So yeah, we have uh, like, really things like broken you know the industry and on this one because it's been something that I think the industry's been trying to do for a very very long period of time so um yeah it has insane compressive strength it's technically an ultra high performance material um it has tensile strength so you don't need rebar for most of it it doesn't degrade in saline applications so you can use it for coastal and maritime solutions the Coral restoration groups were actually one of the first groups to adopt it. Um, so that's super cool. And yeah, yeah. And I'll get super nerdy on that. I'll, yeah, that's one of the things we make. That's our <laughs> mineral. We make our soil. Our soil's technically a biochar, though. It's a soil amendment. Um, and that's right, a carbon-based product uh, that can be a very uh, sustainable alternative to traditional synthetic fertilizers. Um, and so, you know, uh, increasing uh, your biochar content, you know, up to about 2% by volume helps increase crop yield. Uh, it allows for microbial proliferation of the important microbes in soils um, to improve soil health. It uh, acts kind of like a sponge. It's very porous if you look at it under a microscope. So it actually holds water in it, but not cooling water um, so that 
the water doesn't cause uh, like root rot, but still is available for root structures to uptake the water. So water, you know, you can irrigate or it can rain, you know, you, the water can be applied. And instead of it just moving through the soils really fast, it actually is held in a region where you can get access to that water for your crops, for your plants, for your forests. And it can, in, you know, it can reduce the amount of water that the same plot of land needs to see by up to 60%. It's really cool. Um, and then probably one of the biggest parts about it is those, those micro and macro pores actually immobilize heavy toxins. It kind of works some, sort of like a brittle water filter, I suppose this is like the best way that I can explain. But if you're, if you used heavy pesticides, you know, there's been heavy chemicals that have been applied, uh, maybe different types of fertilizers. Maybe you're doing a lot of um, cattle farming, right? Which all of these things cause a lot of runoffs that poison waters uh, that become part, you know, that get out into the ocean that have been poisoning the reefs. Application of these biochars actually immobilizes these. So it doesn't become part of runoff saving the reefs. It doesn't get, make its way down underground water. So it's really cool stuff. And we did not invent it. It has been uh, an indigenous product that has been utilized for well over 6,000 years. Nature makes it naturally you know, even without uh, humans being involved um, for long periods of time, natural wildfires actually would have portions, right, that are basically uh, uh, like almost suffocated, right, underneath the soils. And that would produ produce biochar and high heat applications. And because, you know, humanity has now gotten to the place where we've kind of moved all over the place, we've built our structures and now we're very resistant to allowing fires. We've stopped the fires from occurring, and now these structures that are naturally supposed to be in the soils have been depleted. And so this is really an attempt to get a lot of those back to where we need to be um, to have healthy soils again. Um, and then the two byproducts that are made from that are a water at potable drinking standards, like clean drinking water, and green hydrogen which can be utilized as a sustainable alternative to fossil fuels. So it's super cool. The whole point of the, the whole thing though, was to balance carbons as much as possible, like right, pull the CO2s and CH4s uh, out of the you know environment. And um, yeah, so that's what we do. Um, each of our facilities can scale up or down. Like our large scale facility can remove a billion tons of greenhouse gases from the environment annually, which is mind blowing if you know anything about this industry, because right now we can do, right, about 10,000 times more than the rest of the world can do combined right now. Wow. So that's five orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Wow. So. That, that's that's. I mean, it's you make it sound so easy, but it's like four different issues that are so big and so complicated on their own. But wow, I mean, it's it's just impressive. And something that that caught my attention while Elisa and I were researching is the the other two that we're mentioning the water, the clean water, and the green hydrogen. Because back in college, one of the areas that really caught up my attention and really made me more involved in sustainability and like social access to clean water, because um, I. I didn't know how big of an issue clean water was because we don't realize how privileged we've grown up being in a house that even has drinkable tap water. And uh, it's 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 very sad to that point that even us, we thought that, okay, I mean, 
drinking water uh, or clean water is just an issue in third world countries, like far, far away from me. Like, no, we realize here, even in Texas, where we are at, like it's outside the city. There are people who don't have access to clean water and yeah. they are prone to more uh, issues. And then when we did a project in the Philippines, one of the things uh, we were distributing uh, point of use water filters that they only use gravity. That way they don't have to rely on any sort of um, electricity. And we also pair that with a, a questionnaire, just asking like, hey, has how many kids live in your family? Has anyone got sick lately? Uh, has anyone got any like, and we, for the first like 20, none of them said like they were not getting sick. All of them were like, no, everything's fine. Everyone's healthy. And then we started reframing the question and saying like, oh, have you gotten, we would try to be more explicit, like diarrhea from drinking the water at your home. And then everyone started starting started saying yes. So it, what's so cultural for them, like so normal for them, that getting diarrhea was does not mean getting sick. Uh, yeah. That 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 was very uh, mind blowing for us as well to learn that. And and I and I work on a solar power point of use desalination uh, of brackish water because here we have a lot of uh, groundwater and we try when I harvest that, but it's also very. Uh, a lot of salt not like seawater white but that's one of the sources special here in the desert we don't have uh a sea you know to get water from so um can you talk a little bit more about that desalination process or that filtration process that you have because i saw on your on your website that it's no brine like no end product so that's that's wow and and you mentioned even for seawater that's very very challenging i've seen a lot of applications even using the solars uh solar power to like get some of the byproducts like salt but it's so challenging because of the high content of salt in the water so that's something mm-hmm. i'm very interested in. and the other question i have as well the other byproduct is the green hydrogen um I, i'm not sure what's the difference between a normal hydrogen and a green hydrogen is it just a term or, or how what is the main difference and how does that work Awesome. Both fantastic questions and two that I'm super excited about. Um, Okay. First on the water side of things. Yeah. I think what we've done really in the water processing part of this technology is probably one of the biggest breakthroughs, right? In terms of impact for humanity. Um, We've gotten a lot of attention, particularly actually in the Middle East because of our ability to do this particular type of desalination uh, because, right, the Middle East is reliant on um, almost 98% of their water comes through desalination. And traditionally, desalination produces like a concentrated, you know, caustic material that comes out of it, which we call brine. And right now, almost all of that is entirely injected back into the ocean. So uh, the Persian Gulf, for example, is being decimated, right? Because we're injecting so much brine into that area that it's, you know, we're sterilizing um, and, and just wreaking environmental havoc um, on a lot of the species there. Um, what we do is really, really cool because we've paired all of this together. We have the first system in the world that can do desalination, right, of seawater. We can do a brackish water processing and we can do wastewater treatment processing, right, black waters and gray waters with the production of no effluents or brines at all, which is really, really exciting and very cool. And this is because we break those down so far into their base elements that then we could use those as building block materials that then get put right into our concretes, into our biochars, right? 
it produces excess hydrogen, right, which we utilize. Um, and uh, we get, of course, clean water um, as a byproduct of this, right, which is the whole purpose of going through a lot of, yeah, desalination and wastewater treatment. So we're ecstatic about it. Um, and um, we actually bring the waste into our system. So we're processing the waste that comes in and that's actually our electrical power for our system. So it is um, in terms of, you know, uh, the actual words that are being utilized, it is a waste to energy process that then utilizes that energy to do right these tertiary processing um and so it's super cool because it's still it's not incineration either we're not doing any incineration which means we have no nasty exhaust gas that normally comes from what people think of when they think of waste to energy when people hear waste to energy they normally think you're burning waste right because that's how a lot of it's done this is different. This is a thermal chemical conversion that's super cool, where we actually do the scrubbing and pull out any of our carbon-based products, break those carbon chains down, and then they get built into our base products. And the process of doing that produces all of the electrical energy that we need for, example, our desalination process. So it's really, really neat. And then, um, and then we get to pick right um, between kind of the amount of water and the amount of green hydrogen we want to produce. Because water is H2O, We've got two hydrogens and an oxygen, right? H2O. And so you can further break that down and you can process that into hydrogen and oxygen if you want to, right? Or you can do the opposite. You can bring them together. You know, if you have hydrogen and you have oxygen, you can put them together and you can make more water. And so you kind of get to play with it. It's like, does the community need more access to energy? Then we produce more hydrogen. Right. Does the community need more access to water? Well, then we can produce more water and we can kind of specialize the equipment there. And and it can change basically on demand. It's legitimately a dial you can change to make more water or more hydrogen. And the difference between regular hydrogen and green hydrogen, to answer that question really quickly, is in the energy space and in the hydrogen space, we have different terms that tell us about the type of hydrogen we're utilizing. So um, normal hydrogen, the majority of the hydrogen that's used on the planet is either a black or a gray um, hydrogen, right? So uh, this means that it's being cracked from fossil fuels. Uh -huh. So when you're cracking fossil fuels, right, which is considered a dirty source, you get hydrogen as a byproduct. That is where most of the hydrogen is actually coming from that is utilized at an industrial level. Got it. We have different types uh, of hydrogens and they all have a color associated with them. We've got turquoise, and blue. I think there's even a pink now. But green is really considered the creme de la creme uh, in terms of hydrogen. It means that there is not any uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the production of the hydrogen. Uh, to the majority of the degree. So the green is really saying that you're utilizing a renewable energy as the input source for the production of the hydrogen instead of it being based on, you know, fossil fuels, coals, and things along those lines. So um, I think what we do is even cleaner than green hydrogen, but we don't want to add another color. But if I did, I'd call it, I don't know, a cool color hydrogen. But it's even better than green hydrogen because it's not reliant on um, 
uh, solar or wind. You can use solar or wind as the input energy to make hydrogen as well. But solar and wind actually uh, require battery backups. They require the input of rare earth minerals and their product development. So there still are environmental impacts to developing those solutions. And what we do is super cool because we're actually getting rid of an additional problem, which is more on the waste side of things without the need for mining uh, of any kind um, to generate the electricity. Excellent. So, green hydrogen. That's awesome. And when you say we, I want um, Miguel and I are very curious to know who is we is, who are your potential clients? Who are your current clients? And for people who may want to volunteer or get involved in some degree, how, how is it that they can get involved in what I know now to be the Hawaii location that you have, the production facility out there? I'm also curious to know why Hawaii? And is there a future location, you know, in the calendar somewhere? Yes. Okay. All great questions. Um, first of all, when I say we, I'm really talking about right, the team and our collaborators. Um, there's over 300, right? graduate level experts of us from more than 50 different countries. And we are so blessed. I mean, we have some of the coolest Michael Jordans from different industries on the team. It's mind blowing. Like how in the world I got, you know, some of these people with us um, who believe in this common vision is just like, it is a blessing and an opportunity that, you know, I do not take for granted. And there's some of the coolest people in the universe to work with. Um, I mean, we've got the uh, inventor of Wi-Fi on the team. We've got awesome. uh, one of the inventors of carbon nanotubes on the team. Wow. We've got the godfather of regenerative agriculture with us. We've got a lot of the leading experts out of NASA and the aerospace industry in terms of renewable energies, um, uh, uh, energy storage, fuel cells, and electrolysis all with us. We've got the director of innovative concrete out of the American Concrete Institution with us. We have the leading experts in the world in material sciences with us. Okay, even on the non-technical side of things, it's super cool. I mean, we've got a group who did a lot of the environmental restoration work uh, and policy work for Al Gore's administration with us. We've got one of the former CFOs over at IBM is the CFO of the organization. I mean, like, it's just the Avengers team <laughs> of climate solutions coming together. And it's so <laughs> cool. You know, and it's like, when I think about what we're doing, sometimes it's like, wow, like, those are so many amazing things, you know, that have come together and we developed. But then when I sit back and I look at all of the people that are on the team, right, these like 300 Michael Jordans, I'm like, well, if these people couldn't figure it out, we were going to be screwed So, <laughs> as humanity. So it's a good thing that these things are coming together. Um, in terms of who we work with, we work with darn near everybody. I mean, we work with tons of nonprofits, uh, conservation groups. We work with local community organizations. We work with big business. We work with governments. I mean, like, we are highly, highly collaborative. We really view ourselves as really a think tank, a sort of a group, and just being really, really open to viewpoints and industry lessons learned and, you know, cultural influences internationally and all kinds of really cool stuff. So, yeah, we do uh, also a lot of uh, B2B stuff, too. So 
Um, we work with people who are already in these industries and we make it um, a benefit um, that we're there. So we're not trying to disrupt these industries and we're not trying to, you know, steal customers away from people who are already doing stuff. We're just trying to find better ways that they can do things um, in business. Yes, uh, first full-scale facility is being built right now uh, in Hilo, Hawaii. Uh, we did an analysis to figure out where the most good could be done, and that's what pointed us here. So we do have a list of different locations where the impact socially and environmentally are the highest, and you can definitely look forward to seeing more than one location um, because uh, we are uh, really dedicated to tackling this in the order. Um and then let's see um, what to do to get involved. Uh, we are highly collaborative. Um, you can go to uh, yame.com. Uh, there's a button there to like get involved and join the team. Um, we do, uh, we, we meet tons of people through that avenue. Um, a lot of people also reach out via LinkedIn. So if you guys are LinkedIn users, check me out, uh, Brittany Zimmerman on LinkedIn. Um, but both of those are definitely ways to get involved. We love bringing people on the team, you know, just me getting them introduced, uh, looking at the different solutions we're working on, and then just figuring out how collaboration can work and how we can be mutually beneficial for one another. So that's wow. What we're on. wow, 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 wow. So we're we're almost out of time. Uh, we only have one last question. We want we don't want to take more of your very very busy time helping the world <laughs> get less uh, greenhouse gas emissions and basically save the world. Thank you so much. Uh, so uh, the last question we have is the same one we asked to everyone, and we want to know your interest as well and any recommendations. What are some of the books you recommend that can help us? more learn more about sustainability or whatever you think would be a good book that has changed your life your perspective or helped your work in general i would highly recommend for anybody who has not read it to read the speed of trust by stephen colby um it is such a phenomenal book um it talks through um how you know how we trust one another how we instill trust um and how extending trust responsibly can just make massive strides in terms of business. It literally puts dollar amounts to being able to trust. And it really showcases, you know, a strong way for organizations, individuals, relationships um, to really, you know, be pushed forward in positive ways. And it's one of those things that I wish If everybody had read it before you interact with them the first time, life would just be an infinitely better place to exist. So um, that's the one. If, if you have not read The Speed of Trust, do yourself and the world a favor. It's, it, it will change you. Awesome. Well, right. thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it having you in the, in the podcast. It's such an honor to have such a very nice person that has very passion we can i mean our listeners cannot see it but we can see it in your eyes the passion is just there and it's something that makes brings you happiness and we are happy that you're happy and i know we're all with the same vision and we just hope the best for you and your organization and and we'll keep in touch to see how we can get more involved and and support your goal because that's the goal we all have right make our planet a better place to live so thank you so much for your time thank you mahalo <laughs>